0: You know, as you normally do.
1: Yeah. So, welcome back to another episode of the Shane Burley Hour. Yeah, <laughs> the
0: ears of Platt are known as the Shane Burley Hour. Back in the seventies,
1: uh, they didn't know why. That fifty years later, you'd be telling me the story. No, it's, it's, it's it was. We have to go back in time to alert them. Um, quick into the time machine. What
0: so, else would we do if we could hop into a time machine?
1: Um, go back. Uh, maybe sample some fish. I I bet they had really good fish before they had a lot of pollution in the Ooh, rivers.
0: Ooh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'd be be eating a lot differently back then, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah. I I don't know. One thing that I like about the modern world is that a lot of the old, like, monastic uh, fortified spirits are still identical to what they were in, like, the medieval times. So, like, things like Chartreuse and Dom are, like, just really, really good still. And I always, like, I'll, like, sip. And I'll, like, imagine that it's, like, the Middle Ages or something. And they'll be like, things weren't that different back then. And then I'll think about all the uh, people who died in childbirth. And I'll be like, well, I'm glad I live right now. But still. The, the, the trads are just seething right now.
0: They're <laughs> like, no, your ports are different, you know? No.
1: Well, screw you, trads. Ha-ha! Okay. Go ahead. No, I'm, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. <laughs> Transport me into the years of lead. Yeah, I'm not particularly... Um, I don't know. I'm not, I don't feel very witty today. And maybe that's because we're covering a subject that is dead serious. Dead. Absolutely. Because today we're going to take you back to 1974, when the years of lead intensified through the proclamation of the Red Brigade's that they are going to quote take the attack to the heart of the state. Doesn't it feel like everyone
0: was bringing the war home right about then. That seemed to be like a big theme. That that's that's where the left was at in 1974. They were bringing it back to the mothership.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. They were making the mothership connection. That's what the, <laughs> that's what the Red Brigades were doing at this time. And last time you were here. Uh, we talked about the Red Brigades forming through the Trento student movement, the Milan workers movement, and even some solidarity from anti-fascists in Reggio Emilia's group of the apartment who would go around on weekends and beat up fascists. And uh, we talked about the uh, early 1970s car burnings that they would do. Uh, and they even got into the kidnapping of Sitzmann's manager, Hidalgo Macchiarini, if you remember, from March 3rd, 1972. So, so I'm
0: guessing things only got more hyphy as the years went on. They did they not did, they did not moderate.
1: No. No, they didn't moderate. Things were getting a little more hyphy, uh, as they like to say down in Oakland. Or as I like to call it, O Town. Um Yeah, do I mean, you normally know call it O Town? <laughs> no, I, so. I don't think so. I've never called it O Town before. <laughs> What is this an interrogation all right um so (laughs) so yeah so the red brigades are are kind of interesting uh at this time because they're starting to get hard pressed by the authorities as a result of the bust of another group called the october 22nd band also known as the tupamaros of valbisano Uh, So this was a group that was connected to Feltrinelli's, like, larger uh, organization modeled after the uh, World War II anti-fascist partisans called the Gap. Um, And so his whole idea was they were going to set up these cells in cities and then also have partisans in the countryside who would, like, knock down critical infrastructure and create conditions for urban revolt and that kind of thing, and just gradually build a groundswell. Um, It didn't go very well, unfortunately. Uh, The October 22nd band was kind of part of this situation in Genoa, but they got busted because they tried to rob the Public Housing Administration, which was kind of a dick move in the first place. And in the process of doing that, they murdered a delivery boy who was so committed to public housing that he refused to let go of the like parcel of, of money from the bank that was for their budget. So the, yeah, October 22nd band kind of screws the pooch on that one. And, uh, their leader Mario Rossi is actually caught on camera by like a film student who's like testing. He had just happened to be testing out his like very nice, big high zoom camera in his apartment window. And so he caught like the whole murder taking place in broad daylight. I mean, th- this speaks
0: to like the whole like, I don't know what the term for it be, like disconnected leftists of like, <laughs> like, I you see this with like weather underground stuff of just like a disdain for average working class people, so profound and like this grandeur about your mission that's just so overwhelming that it sort of justifies whatever absurdities you do along
1: the way. Absolutely. And this was the whole point of, I mean, first of all, the point of uh, robbing the public housing administration was that a couple of them already worked there because they were like leftists who like worked for, you know, urban housing. (laughs) And so they're like, yeah, we got this really great idea. And then the other part of it was like you're saying we're revolutionaries and like public housing makes things better and like it's not really helping like overthrow capitalism. So by doing this, we're also making a statement, you know. So A bad statement. Yeah, (laughs) stupid, stupid, stupid stuff. Um, But yeah, so Mario Rossi is the leader of the group and he gets busted and there's this whole thing where a lot of the extra parliamentary left kind of bands together behind the October 22nd group seeking to defend them as they kind of get thrown in front of court. Um, And so... The police use the bust, though, to spread out uh, and start busting more and more people who are tied to this organization. Right. And in the process, they raid a couple of safe houses and nab this one guy named Marco Pisetta, who had been a comrade of Renato Curcio since their days together in the Trento student movement. Uh, so Pisetta cho- chooses that moment to turn on his former comrades and rats out the Red Brigades in a sworn affidavit, effectively co-authored by the military intelligence under the notoriously corrupt General Vito Micheli. So this is all kind of a fraud brought together by the military intelligence. Uh, and Pisetta later says that most of his statement is completely fabricated by mi- uh, by the military intelligence who allowed? Who kind of leaked it out and let his affidavit get published in the right-wing press. Um, So, you know, the whole thing is like very sketchy and it makes it look like leading left-wingers were part of this grand architecture of Italian terrorism writ large. Like the left-wing was also responsible for all this stuff that the right was doing as well, Um, which is really typical of the whole strategy of tension Vito Michelli type of operation. And they're just using Pisetti at this point to, like, construct a big conspiracy theory with the Red Brigades and with GAP and with the October 22nd group. uh, And then also kind of trying to link it back to the Piazza Fontana massacre um, and claim that the left is truly responsible for all of the terror that's happening. Um, And the upshot of this, you know, basically a forgery is that the, what what became known as the historic nucleus of the Red Brigade has to go underground. So Marica Gol, Mario Moretti, Renato Curcio, uh, Franceschini, they all go into clandestinity. So they can't see any of their friends and family. They can't appear in public. They can't organize publicly. They have to live completely secretly. And this like, you know, talk about alienation from the working class. I mean, Clandestinity just increased the, the distance between this core nucleus of the Red Brigades and anybody in, in society. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's the thing that's happening in, in 1972. And then uh, one of their kind of big supporters, Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli, gets blown up trying to plant explosives on an electricity pylon. Uh, and and uh, destroy critical infrastructure and that kind of thing. And so that is another hard blow for the Red Brigades because they liked him, even though they didn't want to join the Gap and his whole, you know, infrastructure. They wanted to carry on the struggle with him as a comrade. Um, and, you know, this, so they've got like the double hit. You know, and at this point, you know, there's a snitch ratting on them and making up stories about them. And then Feltrinelli's dead. And so what do they do? They just cut a swathe through Italy's banks and just start robbing as many banks as they can. And uh, they pool all the money together. They get one another salaries to continue activities as professional revolutionaries. And, um, and even they didn't really trust their luck at this point like alberto franceschini in his book uh que cosa sono le brigaterose says that they felt like this was all really unearned and that someone in power was actually looking after them
0: well i mean was someone in power looking after
1: them i have no idea but this is like this is kind of adds to the myth of the red brigades is that they the impunity that they had while they carried out so many robberies at the end of 1972 just was like it had to have been somebody protecting them from on high,
0: I mean, was the communist party i mean they they would have been pretty angry at these these rabble rousing new leftists, wouldn't they?
1: Yes, they were really angry at the rabble rousing leftists, but at the same time, the Brigate Rose actively tried to recruit people from the Communist Party or related to people from the Communist Party because it would help them try to blackmail and get information. So, like, you won't say anything, you know, about the Brigade Rose if your cousin is wrapped up in this, you know, arson or whatever, you know. So they try to keep the Communist Party in check by recruiting members. It's really an interesting strategy. Um, and i mean i figured that they would just recruit
0: members because that's where they could get support like this you know if you're if you're a member of the communist party and you feel like they're not doing anything you might you might go red brigade next
1: well definitely in 1973 that's what happened that's what started to happen because there's a big occupation in fiat that lasts for weeks uh the end of april and early um it's the end of March, end of March, early April, I think. Um, and uh, the Red Brigades play a really interesting role as like auxiliary commandos to this big factory strike where they end up um, pulling off a few kidnappings that are directly kind of tied to this. So like in uh, on February 12th, 1973, As the tensions are building in the Fiat plants in Mirafiori in uh, um, uh, Turin, the Red Brigades kidnapped uh, an organizer with the fascist union, the Cisnal named Bruno Labate. They rough him up a little bit, strip him to his underwear and leave him chained to the gates of the factory with a humiliating placard around his neck. And he also, um, he gives them a name, uh, another guy, who they can then turn to kidnap, right? So um, they uh, grabbed this other guy named Ettore Amerio on December 10th, 1973, at the end of the year, and they hold him for eight days in what they now called a people's prison, which they got from Latin American uh, revolutionaries, uh, the Tupamaros and, and others. And so they... They're doing this in part for leverage to demand that Fiat doesn't fire a bunch of workers. Um, And at the same time, um, they're interrogating Amerio. But like, it's a weird kind of interrogation. Like Curcio later wrote of Amerio's kidnapping, quote, he was chosen because as Fiat chief of personnel and old manager since Valletta, He represented a powerful symbol of the bosses. The kidnapping was prepared by me, Mara, Bonavita and Ferrari, but comrades from the Milanese uh, column also helped us. We took him under his house and took him to the apartment. He was cold and we brought him heavier clothes. I interrogated him more than an interrogation. It was a chat, an exchange of views. He was sincerely convinced of Fiat's company policy, and cited the opening of plants in Russia, believing that the Soviet Union was our reference point. He was stunned when I explained to him that the model of society was in aberration for us. He was more amazed than afraid. His release was obvious. The elimination of a prisoner was absolutely unthinkable for a common organization. We released him without any conditions because we were not able to support an arm of war that would have been a loser for us at the start. Not Not as it will happen later with Judge Sosi. So they they are kidnapping multiple people. They had also kidnapped another guy in between those two kidnappings. (laughs) Um, But the kidnappings at this point were also tied to a larger goal of supporting a massive workers strike. Right. So this wasn't necessarily just like what you would see later where they just start grabbing individuals they don't like off the street, right? This is actually a, a strategic effort to join with workers' demands um, and to kind of fuse the armed struggle to a labor militant labor occupation in 1973. But, go ahead. I mean, like, is the Communist Party involved in these strikes too? So yeah, the Communist Party uh, was involved in increasing the pressure behind the strikes, but the strikes themselves were more wildcat. They were like the militant fiat workers who convinced other workers to um, to carry out occupation of the of the plant kind of in spite of the Communist Party. And it was as a result of the Communist Party pushing back against the more militant rank and file that you started to see Actually, representatives of the Communist Party, people who are actually officials in the Communist Party in Turin, switch over to the Red Brigades. Um, and so the Red Brigades in 1973 creates a whole new column, they called them columns, in Turin because of the Communist Party's movement actually towards counter terrorism rather than support for the rank and file
0: in the, the PCI is incredibly conservative in a way in comparison to where the rest of the left is at right like we're talking about like a full generational divide yeah
1: yeah and this is that, it's a generational thing that's really important here. Like, one of the guys who joins the Red Brigades in the earlier years actually does come from a family straight from the, uh, the Communist Party and, and basically the left. Uh, his name is Pietro Bertolazzi, who comes from a family in the Lombardy province of Lodi. And his father was a skilled worker at the Italian energy company ENI. And so his mom doesn't have to work, but he goes to elementary school and uh, his teachers think he's just a complete rebel. He runs away and goes to a factory at age 15 because he thinks he's going to, you know, become a man and work in the factory, but his family tracks him down. Uh, Bertolazzi tries to run away again, but eventually he gets actually sick of factory life and goes to school. Uh, and then he develops this idea of, you know, the workers' world as a kind of Moloch, right? He's, like, dissatisfied. And that's what happened with a lot of the youth in the 60s is that they joined the factory, you know, and wanted to become part of the the workers' revolution and then realized the factories really suck. So they actually go to school and then they find out that the schools really suck, you know, Um And for Bertolazzi, he joins the Communist Party Marxist, you know, uh, offshoot organization that Cagol and Curcio had been briefly associated with. And that was his entry point into the Red Brigades and finally clandestinity in 1972. So Bertolazzi is a really good example of somebody who ostensibly comes from a left-wing family, comes from a left-wing tradition, comes from this idea of wanting to join in the factory life, but then kind of you know, he realizes he doesn't really like it very much and he kind of, it's this fusion of, like, the hippie rejection of, you know, factory living uh, and so the social model of modernity and, like, a really violent sort of uh, reaction to social conditions. So, and Bertolazzi is, is important for this episode, so I'll, I'll get back to him. Um, <clears throat> so... Um, the October 22nd group trial finally comes around in early 1974, um, at, and sentencing is on the table. So the judge in this case is this right winger named Mario Sossi. Okay. And the left targets him in particular. Um, defense attorneys are arguing that Mario Rossi should just get manslaughter because he didn't actually mean to kill the delivery boy. Mario Sossi doesn't buy it and he hands down a life sentence, which is really strict for Italy in those days. And a few days later, a group of thousands of extra-parliamentary left demonstrators gathered to protest the Greek dictatorship. And as they're coursing through the streets of Genoa, they stop under Sosi's office window and raise up chants Sosi fascista, sei il primo della lista, which means Sosi fascist, you're first on the list. <laughs> and Sosi sei nero, ti aspetta il cimitero, which means like, we're going to kill you. <laughs> That's, so there are like thousands of people are threatening to murder Mario Sosi at this point.
0: I mean, it's just it seems like the least stable space to build any kind of social movement. It's just absolute chaos. Um, like, even if they are supporting these strikes, I can't imagine that they're building much infrastructure for it.
1: Oh, yeah. And it's it's no, they're not building infrastructure. They're they're building their own infrastructure through their self-financing activities, as they would call it. But in 74, especially, you have a massive economic crisis, which is making things even more difficult. And Mario Sosi at this time actually thinks as well that part of the financial crisis is corporations taking advantage of it and hiking the prices. So his uh, domain Uh, in uh, juridical terms, I suppose, is not just prosecuting the October 22nd group, but also trying to go after price gouging by corporations. Um, So this is like a really crucial part of his activities at the time that nobody really acknowledges. Uh, Instead, people blame Sosi for all of the crackdowns that are happening around Italy since 1972, and he gets the nickname Dr. Handcuffs because because of that trial, because of Marco Piscetta rolling over. And also because uh, he actually uh, was right wing. I mean, he was also uh, notorious for going after like magazine vendors who had uh, pornographic magazines and stuff like that. I mean, so. was he
0: was he? I mean, was he, like, right-wing, like we're thinking about in the years of lead? Or is he just talking about, like, standard Italian conservatism?
1: It's it's a little complicated. I would say he's a Catholic, conservative, right-wing. Uh, he's – when he was in college, he was involved with the fascist student organization – for a couple of years and was one of their candidates, but then he distanced himself from the fascists because he thought that it was all in the past. And basically like, uh, they didn't have a good model for, you know, running in actual society. So basically he's like one of these guys who's like conservative and thinks that the fascists are too radical. Um, but his history with the fascist student, Organization is uh, another it's like a cherry on top for like the left wing campaign against him. So it's like on one level and it's important for Italian society because the left wing campaigns are actually quite like not just vicious, but influential. Um, their whole campaign against uh, Luigi Calabresi, who was responsible for the uh, the early arrests as a result of Piazza Fontana, culminated in Calabresi's assassination in 1972, right? So, um, and while okay, there's some dispute as to whether it was the left or the right that carried it out. Um, there's no doubt that you know, Calabresi was being actively threatened by, you know, journals like Loto Continua. Um, and so this was actually the point where Mario Sosi got himself a revolver <laughs> when Luigi Calabresi had been assassinated because Sosi was like, oh, I'm next. Right. So, you know, all of this was really uh, exhausting for Sosi himself and on April 18th of 1974, he disbands a meeting about the financial investigations into price gouging, throws a few files into his briefcase and takes off for the night. The 42 bus arrives more or less on schedule and he gets on board filing past people and taking a seat where he can thumb through the evening edition of the Genoa Daily Corriere Mercantile. Uh, A journalist bumps into him (laughs) and asks some prodding and annoying questions. So so Sosi starts feeling claustrophobic and he finally gets to his stop and he kind of hurries home. But he feels like the journalist is not the only one stalking his movements. A warm breeze greets him from the coast on Via Zara. He turns down the deserted Fratelli Rosselli and feels what he calls, quote, a sense of disquiet, difficult to express. He gets to Via Al Forte di San Giuliano, where his house sits. Number two, second on the left, the street light is out, though, and it's darker than usual, but the window in his room shows that his light is on, and he sees his neighbor walking her dog. Suddenly, from behind, three attackers grab him and tell him, stay still or we'll kill you. He reaches to his pocket, but realizes he'd left his gun at home. A van screeches up, and they literally just throw him into it, jumping on him and forcing a hood over his face while the driver takes off. They bind his hands and legs as the van speeds off towards the hideout. Sosi starts screaming to have pity on his wife and kids, imagining with full confidence that his captors had doused the house with gasoline and were going to set it on fire. They retort, you didn't have pity for the wife and children of Mario Rossi. I'm going to try to pronounce this right. Le... Le hai cercate per tanto tempo le brigate rose, one of the captors says. E adesso, finalmente, le hai trovate, which means you've been searching for the Red Brigades for a long time and now at last you found them. I heard you were uh, you were asking about me.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, uh... Yeah. So, uh, Sosie thinks they're going to shoot him. Uh, they stop the van and he's like, okay, they're gonna take me out and shoot me so they don't have blood in the car. But they just move him to a different car and drive away. He's thinking about Bruno Lebate, who is stripped to his underwear and chained to the factory gates and starts drifting in and out of consciousness. He realizes that the car is turning a lot, going up and down. He hears voices panicking, bust out the back window. He hears shattered glass, feels strong gusts of wind, and hears a rat-a-tat of automatic weapons fire. The car brushes up against something, and he's being thrown around, lying down on the floor of the van as it goes over bumpy terrain. What had happened was this. Okay, so Margarita Kagol was supposed to go in a car ahead of the car with Sosi in order to radio back anything like a roadblock. You know, she's looking out for cops and stuff like that. She did actually get stopped, but her walkie-talkie was broken, and she figured she just she could just stop. The cops would talk to her, and it would give the next car an opportunity to whiz past the blockade, and 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 that's exactly what happened. Like she's there talking to the cops, and then the other car with Sosie in it is able to get past. Uh, however, the guys in the second car thought that she was arrested, and. Uh, when the cops were so astonished that somebody had actually broken through the blockade, they just let her go. They didn't arrest her or anything. So Kagal takes off in her car trying to catch up to the car with Sosie in it. But the car with sosie in it is on high alert at that point and mistook her for a cop car. So they opened up on Monica Cagall's car with an automatic weapon, actually shooting out her tire. So she had to stop again and fix her flat tire in the dead of night on this mountain road. And finally, she makes it to the next rendezvous point. So (laughs) it's like comedy of errors. uh, But somehow, you know, you know, these guys aren't like the sharpest knives in the drawer, but somehow... You know, Sosi feels underneath the cover some more patchy asphalt and ultimately cobblestones. And finally, they get to the hideout.
0: This is sort of like the behavior that's common to this period of the Western left. It reminds me of like the the Liberation Army and just kind of like a, a, a cascade of buffoonery.
1: Yeah, yeah. yep. But you can't say it wasn't actually... Planned out. I mean, it was, I think some people say it was planned by Kagol herself, uh, but there were 18 people involved in this operation, divided into a support crew and an active crew, which involved four people who actually carried out the kidnapping and then transferred over Sosi to the three, Bertolazzi, Franceschini, and Kagol, who remained with him as they took him to the so-called people's prison in the Alessandria province around Tortona, about an hour's drive from Milan in the foothills of the Ligurian Apennines. So it seems that Bertolazzi may have been involved both in the kidnapping crew and the people's prison crew, but that detail is a little bit hazy. Um, there's some more stuff about, uh, you know, who the kidnapping crew was. Uh, that's a little bit, um, unimportant, but, uh, so so Sosie gets transferred to, uh, thrown into a cell with the following description, a six by six metal cage reinforced with concrete about five feet high with polystyrene walls and beige wallpaper. He has a cot about five feet long and a garbage bucket, a canteen, and that's about it. There are two small holes near the ceiling and two lights. One is white, protected by a grill, and the other is red. After he eats his second meal, the brigatisti switch from white to red, and this is how he discerns when it's nighttime and when it's daytime. On the wall is a red tapestry with the famous yellow... Five point star and the slogan contro il progetto neogolista portare l'attacco al cuore dello stato, which means, yeah, take the attack to the heart of the state and kind of has the ring of a narration from like a Costa Ravis film, (laughs) it's like Z or something, yeah, so. He kind of figures out, you know, I'm probably in the basement, uh, in the mountains somewhere, uh, in like a soundproof room, right? And uh he, pretty claustrophobic, so this really sucks for him. Uh he's been sort of screaming and punching the doors and walls and crying and having a miserable time. Better Tolazi comes in and just yells at him, like, enough, stop it, don't make us tie you up. Uh, and on reflection, and this is one of the one of the weird things, Bertolazzi later said, quote, although comparisons should be made in the same conditions, his behavior was the worst of all those we kidnapped. <laughs> How many people did they kidnap? I know. <laughs> all told, I really I, I up to this point, I think they're on their fifth. And this is just 1974. But this is an important one because it sort of it follows the format that they used for subsequent kidnappings leading up to Aldo Moro, you know. Um, so there's another jailer, as well as Bertolazzi, who wears glasses. Sosi can see beneath the slits of the hoods that they wore, which covered their head and neck down to the sugar paper suit. Uh, and uh, Sosi calls him the graduate because he seems a little more intelligent. Uh, but that's Alberto Franceschini. So it's Franceschini, Bertolazzi are the two people that sosi's going to actually be able to interface with throughout this, this period. Um, and like, this is where Sosi actually makes a pretty smart choice. Like he's kind of, He's he's just basically trapped in there, and they keep on kind of uh, uh, messing with him, and like he overhears them say that uh, if the police find them, they're perfectly happy to go down shooting, you know. And and he realizes like if I do get found out, if they find where we are, we're all gonna die. So. He tries to convince them to let him write to his wife. And uh, this is like controversial among the brigadists. Mario Moretti absolutely doesn't because Moretti and Curcio are in a farmhouse a little bit of a ways away from the hideout, right? So uh, Cagol and Franceschini can go over there to confer with those two. And Moretti absolutely does not want Sossi to be able to exchange letters with the outside world. But Franceschini wins this debate and Sossi is able to write home, quote, please in absolute autonomy order immediate suspension of unnecessary and harmful searches. So when he underlines absolute autonomy, He's referencing the division between uh, state powers because he's part of the judiciary. And so he's trying to get the judiciary to follow his ideas and go against the police who he knows are going to mess this up. And it kind of works. And that was also the exact strategy that the Brigadists had because they wanted to open up more conflicts and contradictions within the state. And so Sosi plays into what the brigadists want to the extent of being able to use the judiciary to work against the state's impulse to deliver a massive manhunt and try to track down the these predators and uh, and bring them down in a hail of bullets. I think we talked about this in another episode, but like how stable was the Italian state at this
0: point? You know, like this is the 70s. This is not that far really into the modernization of Italy. I mean, like, is that, you know, there's lots of regional autonomy and do they have the ability to actually destabilize the Italian state?
1: Yes. Yeah. That's what they found is that absolutely what this does is precisely that, like it destabilizes everything um and 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 here's where the red brigades like new analysis this is where kind of the rubber meets the road they have this paper this position paper that they draft and they give it to sosi called "contro il neocolismo portare l'attacco al cuore dello stato Right. The uh, against neo-Gaulism bring the attack to the heart of the state. And it has everything to do with the fact that the Communist Party is trying to do the grand compromise, the historic compromise with the socialists and the left wing of the Christian Democrats in order to preempt a kind of a fascist coup. And what the brigadists think is that this is showing too much solidarity between the Communist Party and sort of the liberals. And he wants, and the, the brigades want to throw a big wrench in that operation because they think any communist party worth its salt is a revolutionary party that wants to overthrow and not collaborate with capitalism, right? So they think that by grabbing Mario Sosi, they're going to make a big demonstration about the October 22nd case. But more than that, they're going to divide the politics even further. And kind of expose the contradictions of the kind of coalitioning, the coalescing that is happening at that time uh, in the Italian center left. And in, in this operation, they think that they can make that coalition as small as possible and as embarrassing as possible while making themselves look like the heroes on multiple fronts. Are they successful? Well, their analysis is, frankly, ridiculously wrong. They think that neo-Gaulism is their biggest enemy and that the Communist Party is playing into it. And while neo-Gaulism is a big problem at this point, it's actually subversive to the goals of both the center-right and the center-left in the Christian Democrats because it's supported by people like uh, Sonio, um, Edgardo Sogno, who's literally trying to overthrow the Italian government at the same time, but from the right wing. So in the name of going after Gaulism and presidentialism, which was a phenomenon that was subversive to the state, they end up going directly against the state itself, which is fighting against neo gaullism at the same time. So what they do is they're, they're muddling up the conditions if they had just gone against Gaulism, it would have been completely different. And they did make efforts to go against Gaulism. And this is where a weird interlude kind of takes place. Um, so as Sosi is sort of languishing in jail, Mara Cagol and Alberto Franceschini decide that they're going to actually branch out a little and they're going to raid the offices of Edgardo Sogno, who absolutely is trying to overthrow the state and Kagol hits on something. How strange. Uh, this is May 3rd. Um, it's an obituary that Sonia had written for the guy who had died the previous year named Roberto Dotti. And she knows the name from somewhere. So remember last episode when we were talking about the guy, Corrado Simeoni who was part of the Milan Metropolitan Collective and he wanted to create this ultra clandestine force within the militant group Sinistra Proletaria. And it was called Red Aunts at first, and then it became this thing that he called Super Clan for Super Clandestine, and they tried to blow up a building in Greece, but it failed completely. So, yeah. So Kagol actually had been working with Simeone a little bit, and Simeone introduced her to Roberto Dotti, the guy that Sonio for some reason wrote an obituary for. So Dotti had been a Communist partisan who fled to Czechoslovakia after murdering a Fiat executive, but he returned to Italy after that and he refused to join the Communist Party. And when Kagol worked with the Red Aunts, Simeone's clandestine group, he got her to have the members of the clandestine organization fill out biographical cards and give them to Doty. So at this point, it's really weird. And she finds out that Dotti had worked with Sonio in his liberal reactionary paper Pace e Libertà. So Pace e Libertà was like in the fiat factories trying to propagandize against the Communist Party and the extra parliamentary left. And they used a lot of left wing uh, practices and things like that. And they even got money from the CIA. Um, so the fact that this guy who had worked with pa- with Sonio in Pace y Libertà was directly connected to Simeoni and was getting biographical cards of the members of Simeone's clandestine organization is super weird. Yeah. Is really weird, and the the even in, more interesting, Dotti had replaced. The guy uh, Luigi Cavallo, whose building Mario Moretti's wife lived in, and who was called Il Provocatore, and who was uh, uh, you know deeply involved with Sonio for an uh, uh, extended period of time, uh, also involved with uh, the um, the military intelligence. So a lot of questions get opened up here about Sonio's connection to. Dotti, Dotti's connection to Simeoni, and Simeoni's connections to the secret services—perhaps. So, those questions have not been answered.
0: Yeah, I mean, this—it feels like there's like a veil of mystery around this still, you know. Like, and I, I, I sort of like wonder what this says about the continuation of the Italian left. Like, what what connection those things have together.
1: Right, because we're talking about the Brigate Rose. We're talking about people like Mario Moretti, who had been reactionaries. I mean, Mario Moretti had been a fascist in college um, before going with the Catholic Union and then going into the workers' movement through that. Um, and so the, the both of these kind of mysteries that we've seen in this episode so far, with Simeoni and with... Um, this idea that Franceschini has that they were actually being protected by parts of the law, they add to a kind of mythos around the group that it was maybe it was part of the secret services, maybe members of it were part of the secret services, maybe the secret services were helping them. Uh, and at the same time, they seem to have been intuiting some of the ideas that were prominent in the Communist Party at the time that there was this secret plot to take over Italy from the right in a Gaullist form so they actually kind of understood some of what was happening there but they also got a lot of that painfully wrong so that's that's ultimately also the irony of their their position paper that they're against neo-gaulism that not only are they misidentifying where neo-gaulism is but where neo-gaulism is there's actually a really uncomfortable connection to clandestine armed groups Mm. interesting So, um, back at the hideout, Franceschini and, um, and his comrades are, you know, continuing along with Sosi, And so, uh, Franceschini is basically, there's these really weird exchanges that Sosi describes where, where like, um, and Franceschini asks him to have s- self-criticism and admit his mistakes. And he's like, what mistakes? And Franceschini's is like, those you've always committed persecuting the working class. And, uh, you know, it's it's just back and forth like that, where it's like kind of a dad arguing with his teenage son or something. I don't know. It's always kind of awkward. Um but uh basically the Franceschini does kind of tip his cards a little bit where he says that the judiciary plays an instrumental role in the Neo Gaullist restructuring project of the state, and you have consciously carried out this project, so he took you to disarticulate the preventive plan of the bourgeoisie to neutralize the initiative of the masses. So they the, the red brigades really believe that Soci is part of a broader plan by the ruling class to overthrow parliament and install presidentialism, which they're, again, they're not wrong that that is happening, but they're also lashing out as though this is a project of quote, the bourgeoisie rather than a specific political project Uh, limited to the players who are, you know, specifically involved, right? Yeah. So on May 5th, they released their fourth communique, demanding the release of Rossi and and other October October 22nd comrades. And uh, meantime, in the world outside, there's a huge uproar, right? Like communist parties calling them all fascists. A lot of the extra-parliamentary left is calling them fascists, actually. Il Manifesto and Lotto Continua, they're all saying, like, this is garbage. Uh, A partisan Gaetano Noviello, who's got 11 kids, publicly offers himself up as a replacement for Sossi. There's a a big strike called by all the major unions for one day in solidarity with with Sossi. And um, as this is all happening, the chief prosecutor in Genoa, a a powerful man named Dr. Francesco Coco, becomes the de facto leader of a faction of hawks who insist on cracking down even harder and defying Sosi's letters and basically um, saying we need to take no quarter and not negotiate. Uh, the Interior Minister Paolo Emilio Taviani mounts a strategy of silence towards the brigades, which is frustrating for them. Uh, and this is interesting because Taviani is a longtime opponent of Ordine Nuovo. Uh, the OAS put a contract out on him, the French reactionary uh, organization. Um, he's also an opponent of Edgardo d'Osonio. He edged him out of a leadership position in an important partisan group. Uh, And in economic context, he's somewhere between Taviani, somewhere between a Christian kind of socialist and capitalist, you know, planned economy, kind of Keynesian, that kind of thing. So this is their the Red Brigade symbol of neo-Gaulism is actually not really, you know, they're not really hitting the mark once again. But, you know, Taviani wants to make the state look very strong. And so he doesn't want to give an inch And at the same time, on May 9th, there's a prison revolt in Alessandria and it was horribly put down by the police. Counterterrorism. And this makes the brigades again feel very vulnerable, right? They think that, you know, it's time to sort of close the circle here because if they bust in, it's going to be another Alessandria. And Sosi's reaction is, uh, quote, To say to Franceschini, quote, I know that my life for the state is worth nothing. However, in my activity as a magistrate, I happen to have particularly delicate investigations in my hands, which I have covered up for higher orders and of which I know the extremes well. If I tell you about them and you make them public, maybe we can save us all. So Sosi just unveils a massive armed trafficking scandal. Uh, in which he says Taviani is, you know, not, I'm not sure involved would be the right term, but like is covering up, he's like covering implicated it up. it he's implicated in it. Exactly. So he's, yeah. So he tells the red brigades that there is, that the, that the powers that be are involved in arms trafficking out of Genoa and they publish it in a new communique and it's just a huge ordeal. It's like it's like a giant ordeal, and um and so now they're on their again they're in on the defensive because they have to argue, you know, this isn't actually happening, and, and, and the whole thing is is slipping away from them, and the Red Brigades look like they're, um, you know, the heroes who are unveiling neo-gaulism and the, cor- the corruption of the state. So they're taking the attack to the heart of the state, right? Um, and while this is happening, here's a, another crazy turn. Vito Michelli, the head of the military defense uh, uh, intelligence, military intelligence, devises a plan to kidnap Felcinelli's former partisan comrade, Giovanni Battista Lasagna, anya <laughs> <on, yeah>, and <laughs> interrogate, <laughs> interrogate him to find out where the people's prison was. If they find the prison, they're going to kill Let'sania and leave his body there, saying that they had found the true chief of the Biriate So they were going to frame this former partisan and kill him and leave his body in the prison after they, you know, basically killed everybody. So. <laughs> So, that, and that comes out a little bit later, and uh, it, it's another part of this whole ordeal that, you know, just sort of leaves all of Italian society completely stunned. So, the story goes on for a little bit longer, but basically, at this point, even the Pope is getting involved. Uh, the Pope appeals personally to the brigades, saying, quote, To the unknown men who hold Judge Mario Sosi kidnapped, we also pray very much that they want to return him as soon as possible, free and unharmed, to his family, distressed and innocent, thus giving plausible conclusion to a cowardly and risky attack worthy of the most lively and unanimous deploring, while we declare ourselves willing. We remember that, above human actions, the righteousness of God stands vigilant and indictment of the perverse ones, and his fatherly mercy stands for those repentant and generous. Yeah, you think that the the pope was like, yeah, you know, this this will really work. <laughs> Called them perverse. Then no. Maybe they'll do it. <laughs> I don't think that the pope thought it would work so much as I think that the pope wanted to turn uh, all of this scandalized and fractured Italian public, totally against the brigades because the brigades, in their even in their previous three kidnappings of 1973, were still viewed as maybe a Robin Hood group of people. I mean, they had they had been uncovering some pretty significant stuff. They found that the Fiat had an actual hiring policy of hiring fascists, like Fiat would prefer to hire fascists and they had deals with the fascist unions you know for spies in the factories and scabs and all of those things so you know and and the brigades were the ones who who brought that to light you know and just now they've exposed this big arms trafficking thing so a lot of people are like maybe we'll just let this play out and <laughs> and I think when the pope but I think when the pope and the three unions and everybody is just like enough is enough it actually does change a lot of people's minds. And so the the brigades at this point, this is like a turning point for them. This is where their popularity starts to sort of ebb. And yeah, so um, so basically they realize they kind of have to start wrapping this up. Um, Franceschini's put in charge of the execution if it comes to that. Uh, and he himself tells Sosi, he's like, you know, I have to test myself because uh, you're, he says, quote, you're a man with whom I have now established in 30 days of coexistence a certain relationship, maybe not really friendly, but human, a relationship of understanding in short. So she asks him, you want to test yourself? He responds, well, let's say an experiment, but let's be clear, we're talking in the abstract. And so she says, for my part, I'd gladly do without this experiment. <laughs> and Franceschini <laughs> responds, quote, it would be a way to see how far you can fulfill your duty as revolutionary communist far- fighters and to what extent you can stifle personal feelings to remain faithful to an order received. So basically, they're getting ready to murder Sosi. And in the last minute, uh, the Genoa appeals court ignores the position of Francesco Coco, the head prosecutor, and they decide that they can use what's called the Valpreda law, which helped spring Pietro Valpreda, the anarchist who was arrested for uh, alleged involvement in the Piazza Fontana massacre. So this is like, you can't hold them in preventive detention. And they say you can, this also applies for October 22nd in this case, because it will cause unrest in Italy. And so the appeals court decides that You know, they can release the October 22nd group on these conditions if the brigades release Sosi. And so so, Sosi's ploy has worked, it seems. Um, But the brigadists whole plan, uh, they get this guy named Corrado Corgi who has lots of contacts in the revolutionary left around the world. And he sets up a scenario where the October 22nd group is freed and remanded to the custody of the Cuban embassy in the Vatican and from there sent to Cuba. But the Italian communist party leans on the Cubans. One story floated by Franceschini is that they promised Castro 50 tractors. And so the Cubans end up saying no. Another story is that the communist party appealed to Moscow and that Moscow intervened against the Brigadists? Anyway, the Cubans say no, that deal's rejected. And Franceschini later says, it was confirmation that in the end, the logic that always prevails is that of the reason of this state. Yeah, I mean, how does the USSR respond to them? Because I imagine they respond differently than they do to like
0: the Red Army faction.
1: I don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot of sketchy stuff. That, like in 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 this whole telling, I'm leaving out a lot. Like at one point, Franceschini tries to say that the that Mossad had offered to fund and arm the Red Brigades. Um, in another place, he say uh, other people uh say that uh they were training with the Palestinians. Uh, right there are those. I mean, stories. that makes a lot more sense than Mossad. Well, but they were also anti fascists, especially going into 1974. They were just torching a lot of fascists' cars. I mean, that was their, their mo was like basically pretty strictly anti fascist in the context of the factories. Their mo wasn't so much kidnapping random members of the judiciary. Well, not random, but yeah. Hmm. So,
0: so I don't but, know. You know. Like, if they were training with the PLO alongside like I mean basically other folks like Red Army faction and, yeah. and provisionals and stuff, right? That that seems like it would make a little bit more sense than at that point it's not like the Mossad had much advantage for dealing with these insurrectionary groups in Europe.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um there's Franceschini saying they did. Uh at least up until seventy three, seventy four. Um, and then there's other stories about how the Brigate Rosse were connected to the Red Army faction and were connected to various sort of uh, sub-rosa terrorist organizations in Europe in the 1970s. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we're going to get into that more uh, going into the the uh, later part of the 1970s. But at this point, they probably enjoyed some of the connections uh, that uh, Feltrinelli helped set up, who was incredibly well connected um but as for the USSR I think that they were less involved the KGB in in my understanding was a little bit less involved in the European theater than the Stasi so the Stasi would have been the ones with who would have been their more direct reference point but at the same time they were genuinely anti-Soviet in the way that the RAF wasn't yeah, I think so. I think because because it's unrelenting. In their in their books, they're always like, it really pisses me off that people would always say, Oh, you're Soviet, you know, friendly, da da. da, da. We aren't. We weren't, you know. <laughs> and they emphatically say In this. the red brigades? All of them. All yeah. of them. Bertolazzi, Franceschini, Curcio, everybody who has written about being in the brigades or or had, you know, in, in any of these books, um, they all say you know, it really pisses us off when people say that we were like financed or supported by the Soviets or that we supported the Soviets. Because they're because... part
0: of Autonomia, essentially. I mean, essentially, ideologically.
1: No, nah, they weren't really. They 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 would say at this time, they would say that Autonomia provided a great sort of pool for them to be fishing in. But for them, their ideology—they weren't like, say, the organizations like Comitati Comunisti per il Potere Operaio, which was uh, connected to the journal Senza Trégua*, but had a very kind of like uh, violent, armed group kind of mentality, right? Those groups were a lot like the Red Brigades, but they were also kind of embracing a much looser format of organizing. Uh, within sort of the milieu or the area of autonomia, whereas the brigades just thought autonomia was like the kindergarten, uh, and once you if you graduated from autonomia, then you could join the disciplined revolutionary cadre of the Red Brigades, right? The Marxist-Leninists. Um, but they they didn't think that autonomia was particularly useful. Other than that, they thought that it wasn't a real strategy.
0: Mm. I mean, do you think that the reason that they have that more anti-Soviet mentality than the RAF is that they're dealing with a large influential Communist Party that's conservative?
1: It might be. Yeah, because uh, in in Germany, you have the the contradiction presented by East Germany that was actually communist, you know, and uh, a lot of the Italian Communist Party, you know, there are various factions within it. But a lot of the Italian Communist Party just wanted Italy to be a lot like East Germany, you know, so they didn't have a left wing reference point uh, that was to the left of the Social Democrats in 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 west germany
0: right so less differentiation essentially on the left
1: yeah yeah um and they were like ultra leftists uh but they weren't you know very enthused by the soviets right they were part of that other generation
0: was there was there a, um separatist movements in italy at the time was there like sicilian separatists and stuff and and did they did they sort of fuck with them at all i mean was that a part of the equation
1: this was something that like Feltrinelli was particularly interested in, especially in the early 70s when he comes back from Cuba uh, because he's doing a book uh, with Castro. Um, And he kind of loses hope that there's going to be, you know, a communist revolution to the left of the Communist Party. Uh, And he starts thinking maybe Marx isn't our best reference point. Maybe we need to go back to some of these like medieval kind of people, popular revolutions. And, uh, you know, there are some very famous stories of, uh, I think, 14th century uprisings in like Fruly, um, where there's the cruel Thursday of abundance, where they like... uh, uh, turned the um, the rich from their sort of hilltop manors and uh, stole their clothes and forced them to dress like peasants and like <laughs> paraded them through the streets and stuff like that. And then there's there was also a long-standing Sardinian independence movement. And so Felcinelli wanted kind of to draw from those kind of fountains of Italian sort of uh, rebellion uh, rather than stick to a strictly Marxian sort of, uh, platform. Um, it, but it, it kind of foundered and it, in some ways it came a little bit too close to groups like, um, the, uh, oh man, what's it called? The, um, uh, geez, Lotta di Popolo, the, uh, the fascist, uh, um, pseudo left wing kind of Nazi Maoist organizations, because they were doing the same thing of trying to raise up an ultra nationalist sort of insurrection against, uh, the, uh, I won't say a united Italy, but certainly the liberal, uh, republic.
0: I it, I do kind of understand I guess where he would come from with that, and in like a a country that has uneven economic modernization, you might look for these like almost like pre-capitalist forms of resistance. It makes me think of Joshua Clover's book "Riot Strike Riot," which sort of like looks at the history of of sort of like mass resistance as mostly on ri- riots until you had basically the 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 mass implementation of proletarian identity and then when you could have strikes so like people are became employees but now increasingly people don't fit the model of an employee very much anymore so they're returning to the riot sort of so I kind of like understand this sense of like oh like that Marxist equation of resistance it actually does it's not as ubiquitous in our context Uh, and actually I think all of Maoism in a way is sort of like trying to to critique that
1: yeah yeah, absolutely. And, and this was also a thing uh, with the, um, the Reggio Revolt in 1970. It was uh, this populist, localist uprising from Italy's deep south, you know, that really had no reference point in Rome and was kind of an autonomous uprising against, uh, against uh, neglect you know, and basically rule from the north. So um, this was actually the the Reggio Revolt was supported by Loto Continua. Um, and uh, the the Red Brigades, though, were not as enamored with those kinds of sort of like this idea of a populist insurrectionary approach or a populist insurgency from the rural countryside or the remote provinces, you know, like, eh, they, they, I don't think that they, I think that Insofar as they played into the Red Brigades' strategy to basically tear Italy apart, um, then they work out, you know. But I don't think that the Red Brigades uh, sought to inflame those specific regionalist tensions so much as they sought uh, socioeconomic uh, uh, um, polarizations.
0: This this like notion in the 70s that a strategy of tension was going to work in a European country just seems to me like sort of baffling. Um, you know, um, if it wasn't working and particularly clear by that point in Northern Ireland that it wasn't working, like I'm not sure why the Red Brigade would think that somehow that that kind of would fracture it enough that there would be like mass revolution, particularly when they're doing unpopular things. You know, like when they're not actually creating popular support while doing it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that was really this is that's that's in a sense, maybe the tragedy of their clandestine, clandestineity or clandestinity um, is that the more they the more remote the brigades became from uh, Italian civil life the, uh, the weirder their actions and their ideas became, you know? So like in this case, this whole plan with like, we're going to take him to the Cuban embassy and all that kind of stuff, like really kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. And then like basically Coco ends up intervening and canceling the whole thing. So they don't have an out and then they just release Sosi. (laughs) they cover his eyes with patches and big women's sunglasses over his face and they put him in the rear passenger seat of a car and they uh, drive into Milan (laughs) totally undetected Uh, and leave him in a small public garden with a second class ticket to Genoa in his pocket after telling him to count down from 100 they get back in their car and they disappear and uh, you know like they don't get anything out of it. Like after 35 days with this, like, you know, judge in, in their people's prison, uh, they just, they have to let him go. They realize, you know, basically, you know, either they kill him or they don't. And it's not working out. So they just let him go. And, uh, it's really weird because Mario Moretti really, really wants to kill him like Mario Moretti because Franceschini is arguing again with Moretti and Curicchio and Moretti's like we can't we'll be laughed at you know and and uh Franceschini's like no we have to let him go because uh, you know this sort of activity is sort of beyond our capacity at this point right and we've already won because we've exposed all of these crises within the state so So they end up letting him go. Moretti loses out. But this is extremely important because, um, well, Franceschini and Curcio are about to have a little bit of a run in with the state. Basically, they trust this guy who they call Father Mitra. But the Father Mitra is actually a guy named Silvano Girotto, who's an agent of the Carabinieri. And uh, so uh, Franceschini takes Curcio to meet with him at a train station. Franceschini's waiting in a nearby bar meeting goes off. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, as they're driving away, they get arrested on a secondary road and um, the jig is up basically. So Franceschini uh, and Curcio get arrested just weeks after releasing sosi um and yeah and they go to jail (laughs) so moretti is the only one you know aside from kagol of that you know historic nucleus involved in the sosi kidnapping that's still around right and so you know the saga of um of Curcio and Franceschini in jail is going to be a little bit complicated because there's escapes and there's intrigue and all of that stuff. But by and large, they stay in jail and Moretti kind of becomes the leader of the Brigate Rose. He's the one who is driving for the assassination of Sosi. And he's the one who's going to be in charge when they kidnap Aldo Moro. So you can see... Um, this is the beginning for them, in a sense, it's 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 the beginning of the it's the end of the first chapter, the historic nucleus chapter of the Brigate Rose. And it's the beginning of a new phase. Right. Um, and this is a quote. Um, the, the quote I wanted to end this on from Mario Moretti. Uh, where he says that with the Sosi action, it was said, the first phase of guerrilla warfare was over, characterized by a compact force, but only relatively organized. If until then, the Brigate Rose had been fought for their actions, therefore, quote, for what they did, from Sosi onwards, they were fought, quote, for the fact of existing. The brigadists, in short, had sensed that the investigations into them had been unified under the command of a single structure or that, quote, the enemy starts from a single centralized investigation into the organization and seeks its foundations and men, regardless of ascertained responsibilities, evidences of guilt, etc. Precisely to parry the blow brought with this counterbalance, a new organizational structure had to be achieved. So Moretti takes over. He thinks... Everybody's against us simply for who we are. They're taking on a new stage where they're basically just going after, you know, activists for simply, you know, knowing us or maybe knowing us. And so at this point, we need to create a different military approach. And that's going to be something that holds pretty consistent from 74, 75 until you know, the, the Moro kidnapping and it's going to include a new column in Rome with a guy named Valerio Morucci and it's that Rome column that carries out the Moro kidnapping. So that's the, so that's the, that's the, that's the long and short of um, Mario Sosi, a not particularly sympathetic figure <laughs> and how he kind of rift his way out of captivity of the Brigate Rose with a little bit of luck, uh, in spite of many of his own colleagues who he would he would suspect actually wanted him dead.
0: Imagine how stressful it is. I just like I I you know like it just sounds like the worst living your worst life. (laughs)
1: yeah i can't really imagine something worse than like what a six by six foot soundproof room in the basement being like fucked with by alberto franceschini like that would suck
0: i just think too like (laughs) some of these groups like when you hear like the the testimonies of like the Weather Collectives. I'm like, you know, imagine years of your life just be spent like fucking miserable. Like, it just seems like such a a, a miserable way to uh, to engage with politics, you
1: know? Oh, the Brigadists themselves. I mean, yeah, the, the 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 thing about I and Franceschini just in his interviews after the fact and and his and his book, he just seems. I mean, he's very devastated and you can tell he thinks back on who he was, excuse me, on who he was as like this, this totally kind of programmed person who thought that he understood objectively everything that was happening and was reacting in purely rational and uh, intelligent ways. And his arrest and subsequent incarceration the the moro uh kidnapping and assassination they all seem to say the other thing right so he just seems like such almost like a tragic figure in a sense not that i feel particularly sorry for him but as like in his own like presentation you know he just seems like i don't know of course there's a lot of regret but but on top of the regret is the shock at having been wrong. Curcio, not so much. I don't think that Curcio thinks of things in terms of like, was it right? Was it wrong? I think he's a little bit more brash about sort of moral judgments, you know? Neither of them likely had much to do with the Moro kidnapping. Um, And so that's why I think to an extent, they're still, you know, that their legacy is quite different, I think, from Moretti and Marucci. Um But uh, yeah, they're, uh, I don't know. Yeah. And the whole clandestinity thing, all the seedy safe houses, just like the way that they had to carry themselves in public and always looking over their shoulder and all of that kind of stuff. And just the weird interactions with Sosi where where Franceschini's like, well, I have to test whether or not I'm a robot. And it's like, <laughs> wow, do you? So that's it. What are you uh what are you working on these days that you want to tell everybody? But I know you uh you uh are are on tour. You're um I've been on tour. I'm
0: supposed to be in Spokane on Sunday. Um, though we are in the middle of a cold snap, so I don't know if my plane will take off. We'll find out. Um I'm hoping that Ben Ben Lorber, my co-author, and I will announce the date of our book soon, hopefully, uh, when it comes out. Um, and um, so, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Shane underscore Burly One. It's probably the best place. I have a newsletter called the uh, Maasai Review uh, where I talk about various Judaica things. Um, and those are good good places to, to, to find me. And uh, I have a bunch of other pieces about
1: to come out awesome awesome sounds good and of course if you liked what you heard today please uh drop us a few bucks in the patreon where you can get lots of bonus episodes and stuff like that and give us a five-star rating on the uh platform of your choice and as always i've been your host alexander reed ross and thank you so much for tuning in to the years of light Pod.